Hello there, this is Mark Bauerlein with another conversation. Before we get to it, a word about one of our sponsors. You may have seen a recent article in InsideHigherEd.com that began, Wyoming Catholic College has a lot of unusual things about it, each enough to merit a story in itself. Wyoming Catholic is a conservative Catholic college that educates students in the great books and Catholic tradition. It also teaches horsemanship and bans cell phones on campus. I love that. And it turned down federal funding. President Glenn Arbery describes the mission this way. This college is engaged in deep ways with the agony of a culture that has lost its spiritual center. We're adventurous and poetic and deeply Catholic. He likes to cite Dostoevsky in Crime and Punishment. Low ceilings are bad for the soul. The ceilings rise at Wyoming Catholic, which is located in the foothills of the Wind River Mountains. The curriculum centers in the Western tradition. Its Catholic identity builds upon Thomas Aquinas and the magisterium of the Catholic Church and engaging with God in the wilderness. Find out more at wyomingcatholic.edu. We have with us today economist Jennifer Roback Morse. She is the founder of the Ruth Institute, a pro-family organization. And she has taught at Yale University and George Mason University. She's been a research fellow at the Hoover Institution. Her books include Love and Economics, Why the Laissez-Faire Family Doesn't Work a collection of essays entitled The Sexual Revolution and Its Victims, and also in 2018, a book entitled The Sexual State, How Elite Ideologies Are Destroying Lives and Why the Church Was Right All Along. Uh, Dr. Morse, thank you for joining us. I'm glad to be here. Thanks very much. Good, good. Well, we'll, we'll get to the, the, the writings uh, through perhaps uh, my asking you a lot of general questions about the sexual revolution. We hear so much talk about the sexual revolution on one side, usually as a force of liberation. And, and let's, let's get a fuller picture, uh, if, if we can. I mean, now that we are nearly six decades from its inception, uh, you know, why do you think in your work you've studied so much of this empirically and historically, why do you think the sexual revolution happened? And, and when, would you date it from the early 60s when, when it really first started surfacing? Well, uh, the, the, the institutional structures that are associated with the sexual revolution definitely took root in the 60s and early 70s. So you would like, for the contraceptive ideology, you would certainly want to date that with Griswold versus Connecticut in 1965. Uh, for the divorce ideology, you'd certainly want to have um, the introduction of no-fault divorce, which began in California in 1968 and then spread by, by the early 70s. That was everywhere. And the gender ideology dates, generally speaking, from, um, from what is uh, called, misleadingly called feminism. Uh, which is also a late 60s phenomenon. So, so those, the, those are the three things that I talk about as, as being the defining characteristics of the sexual revolution. And yep, they're pretty much all late 60s, early 70s, although obviously their intellectual genesis goes back much further than that. But, you know, we could end up back in the Garden of Eden if we're not careful. So we'll just stop there with the 60s, you know, um, and look at those key things. And, and, and you can see what all those have in common um, is that they're, their actions by the state that institutionalize certain things, you know, that, that where the state is coming in on the side of one thing rather than another. And in that process, where, you know, you, you wake up and you look around and you realize, gee, all of a sudden the state is a whole lot more powerful than it used to be. And people are a whole lot more miserable than they used to be. And there's a lot less stability in family uh, and a lot more disappointment in human 
romantic relationships. There's just a lot more pain and disappointment. So, you know, you add it all up and you go, you know, this is not a good deal. (laughs) Whoever's bright idea this was, this is not working the way it was promised to us, you know. And and so that's, I, I would say, the key insight. Uh, that propels me forward. And, and, and the standard justification that we hear, certainly among uh, liberal or popular conceptions, is that the sexual revolution happened because women were sick and tired of sexual oppression and other kinds. Yeah, yeah well, that's, that's convenient. That's convenient that, that, uh, that that's what we hear, that that's the only thing we ever hear, all right? Because now, in retrospect, what we don't hear is the fact that transgender ideology is quite literally erasing womanhood and erasing women completely. Um, recently, CNN, quoting the American Cancer Society, mind you, uh, referred to individuals with cervixes should get, should get cancer screening and blah, blah, blah. Well, that came from the American Cancer Society. It's not just CNN here. You know, it's a, it's a medical, you know, a, a, a venerable um, you would think non-ideological organization refusing to use the word woman. I saw the I saw the CNN statement go out on Twitter, and it was all about CNN in, in terms of the responses and the ridicule. This actually is a phrase used by the American Cancer Society. Oh yeah, you 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 go look at that original tweet uh, from CNN, and you go back and you see they're quoting the American Cancer Society saying. You know, these are the new, and and that's all the CNN Twitter was, tweet was, was, you know, uh, here's what you should do about getting cervical cancer screening. But if you follow the link back, you end up back at this paper, you know, a paper, not a a press release, but, you know, like a, like, um, you know, look like an academic paper. And it says in the paper, uh, individuals with cervixes should get screened in this manner and that manner and so on and so forth. So yeah, it came out of the American Cancer Society. So that's how that's how deeply um, the ideology has penetrated the culture. This is not a pro-woman thing to be saying that individuals with cervixes, like you're afraid to say the word woman, you know. Uh, and and you probably are aware of this that that the the LGBT coalition is busting at the seams because the T's and the L's are an open warfare against each other. There's a a mean term that the trans activists use called TERF that stands for trans erasing radical feminists because it's the feminists who are saying, what the heck? (laughs) Redefining women out of existence that a man who says he's a woman gets all the rights and privileges and spaces uh, that a woman gets. You know, the ideology, and this is flowing directly out of the gender ideology, saying that the body is something insignificant and, uh, and that <clears throat> all the differences that seem to have to do with male and female, that's all socially constructed. Uh, there's nothing essential about male and female. All that can be socially reconstructed. And now that ideology has moved along to the point uh, that we can't, that, that, that we seem to believe, we act as if we believe that male and female itself is a social construct so that the individual can reconstruct themselves, um, and that if an individual chooses to reconstruct themselves, we're morally obligated to go along with that, you know. So, so the the and, and no serious person, Mark. Here, here's where here's where the rubber really hits the road. Where you really got to open your eyes here. No serious person today can say that transgenderism was a grassroots movement. 
that bubbles up from the masses. No serious person believes that. Uh, this is obviously a top-down, uh, elite-driven thing uh, that normal people are looking around going, what the heck is going on here? You know, and the normal people don't want this imposed on them at all. And if you take that thought, pat, thought process and, and ask yourself, well, well, what was going on in the 1960s? You will see that that actually is the pattern. You know, normal people didn't come up and demand no-fault divorce. That was the American Law Institute that wanted that. Um, normal people didn't demand feminism. That was uh, you know, Betty Friedan and her friends from elite women's universities, women's colleges. That's who demanded that. Normal people, were, normal women, ordinary women, were following Phyllis Schlafly saying, we want our husbands to stay home, to, to take care of us. We, we don't, we, we want to have a stable relationship so that we can take care of our children and not worry about our husband toddling off with a, with a secretary or something, you know? Um, so, so a lot of this stuff, if you look back on it, um, you will, and, and that's what I do in the book, the sexual state, you will see how the, the, the overall pattern is that we deliver women into the hands of employers for employment, and we deliver women into the hands of men who want to have sex without having babies. That's what the sexual revolution, in fact, has done. And you can put paint lipstick on it all day long, but it's still a pig. You know, that's what is going on there. You say in one of the essays in The Sexual Revolution and Its Victims, quote, the widespread promotion of contraception has unleashed many social forces that would have been best contained. Uh, what are some of those social forces that have been unleashed that would have been best contained? Well, the, the idea that sex, the, the core idea about the, the contraceptive ideology, and I make a distinction always, Mark, between the contraceptive ideology and the contraceptive technology, because people are apt to say, oh, the pill changed everything. And I say that's nonsense, because the pill is just a piece of technology. It sits on the shelf. It's the people who promote it and what they say about it. That's what changed everything, you know. And, and so what, what was unleashed here was the idea that sex is normatively a sterile activity, that you are entitled to have sex without any expectation at all that a child will ever result from it. And if a child results from it, that is, um, that's like a, a, a something completely wild and unexpected, and we have no idea what to think, and it's like a special case every single time. We're surprised, you know, that a baby has shown up, you know, it's like, oh, gee, uh, I, I, I thought that was how it was supposed to work, you know, you have sex and then babies happen, you know, but, but we all have this idea that we're entitled to many years of, of, of sex without ever having a baby. And so therefore we don't plan to be responsible for a child that might result. And so all of this is being, all of this is fueling the idea of recreational sex, the idea of sex without relationship. Um, and so I think this is part of the, the kind of radical individualization that you see and in, in, in a lot of the, a lot of the very, very profound loneliness that is so much a part of modern life. I think that's probably what I was thinking of in that particular essay, you know, um, that um, the sex is very often very, very disappointing because our bodies are meant to attach. Our bodies are meant to connect so that we'll build that stable relationship so that a child can be nurtured in it for a, lo for a lifetime, you know.
That's what that's what the body's actually trying to do, and the physiology is all there. If you study that a little bit, it doesn't take much to see that this is what the hormones are trying to do, you know, um, is to attach you to your sex partners. So, um, you know, I mean, that's normal. And so, you know, we're telling these college students that they can have sex. You know, we, we give them pills and condoms, and that's supposed to that's supposed to make it all okay. Well, well, then it isn't all okay. And then they're heartbroken, and they're and they're lonely, and they don't trust anybody. And you know, and we've got young men. We've got young men. Did you know this, Mark? We got young men having erectile dysfunction. It's it, it's actually called. Uh, there's actually an acronym for it. It's called pornography-induced erectile dysfunction. I I was gonna say, uh, is is this is this from all the porn they get from early early teenage years? Yeah, yeah, yeah. This is part of the sexual revolution. To early teenage years, nothing, man. The I, Average age at first exposure is like nine, nine years old, you know, and it's it's popping up into and on people's on, on little kids' phones and their tablets and their iPads and stuff like that. Yeah, it's 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 very dark. Uh, what has been unleashed, you know, and and the porn industry, of course, the porn in, uh, porn industry would be unthinkable without the contraceptive ideology, right? You know, just, just let that play out. You know, the idea that you would be selling this, this experience, this virtual experience you know, in a world where people are, are connecting sex and babies. It's like, what is, it? what is this? This is, this is crazy. Get out, get, go away, you know? But instead, instead it's like this, it's like this vicious cycle of feeding an appetite um, that that you, you see what I mean, and the, the, and the and the whole industry, you know, billions of dollars are being made on feeding this misdirected appetite. Now, Jennifer, you, you've been you've been on this for a long time, uh, and pointing out the victims of the sexual revolution. Now, in the conversations you've had, have you had this experience? Because I've had a few conversations with with people on this. And my liberal friends, I will say to them when they'll talk about sexual revolution, liberation, feminism, and so on, I'll, I'll say to them, do you think that that low-income single mother with two children, she's 29 years old, the children she had with two different men, uh, neither of whom are around uh, to help raise the, these, these kids, neither of whom pay any child support, they're out of the picture, she has to work, she turns the kids over to her mother, uh, or her aunt, someone to take care of them. Was the sexual revolution good for her? And Jennifer, I get a blank look. That there's there's a kind of incognizance, as if they've never heard or considered that question before. Is have you seen this happen? I'm sure you're right. Yes, yes, I have. Of course, I've seen that happen. Um, and a couple things about that. I mean, first of all, I think that. For a lot of college-educated professionals, the truth is they don't know anybody like that. The truth is that 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 whole part of society is completely separated off from the experience of the typical college-educated professional. So they don't really know anybody like that. It's not part of their world. And so when you bring it up to them, it's like, well, that's like a new thought to them. You know, you brought up something, you know, from the far corners of the world that doesn't doesn't seem like it's related to them or is their problem. Um, so, I, so I, I certainly can confirm what you're saying. You know that that is how people react. But I did, I did, ha- I have had a very interesting experience um, in the process of debating the definition of marriage, 
Now, back in the day, uh, the question of gay marriage was once debatable. Perhaps you don't remember that, but at one time, that was considered a debatable issue. And and um, from the period about, I don't know, I guess 2009 through 2012, that period of time, I did a lot of debating on, on campuses, especially like Federal Society Law School type events, you know? And so I could look out there, you know, kind of week after week and see the faces of those students and whether they were buying what I was selling, you know, are they getting this or not, you know? And over, over time, the, the, here's what I came up with as, as a way to help them understand what I was trying to say, which is that, you know, I, I would go in and I would say, we're here to debate the definition of marriage. Well, you know, marriage was once redefined at the, about 30 or 40 years ago, marriage was redefined. Marriage was redefined by removing the presumption of permanence from marriage. At one time, it was presumed that marriage was lifelong. After no-fault divorce, the presumption that marriage would be permanent, that's removed as a legal presumption. And at that time, we were all told, uh, we were all asked these rhetorical questions like, how will my divorce affect your marriage? Uh, only a few people are going to get divorced because only a few people are getting divorced now. And besides, we have all these studies showing that the children of divorce are fine. Nothing bad is going to happen to the children. This is what we were told. Now, the reason that worked in a law school is I'm looking out there and half those kids have been through divorce. Half those kids have already been through a divorce. And now their minds are at work. Now they're going. And then I deliver the punch. We now know that all of that stuff was untrue. We know that divorce does affect children. And now all of a sudden, I'm the person who understands them. Instead of me scolding them or trying to uh, talk them out of their position or anything like that, I'm the one and only person who's willing to say, this was hard. This was not what we were promised. And now they're listening. I can't tell you they all jumped on board and agreed with me. But I, I can tell you that now they were listening. Because nobody will say that to them. Nobody will acknowledge to them that stunk. That was horrible. That was awful for you. And I would, there would almost always, there would be one or two students who would come uh, afterwards and and tell me, you know, what it was really like for them uh, to see their mom with a new boyfriend that wasn't their dad, you know, and, and what it felt like to see their mom in bed with somebody else, you know? Um, A whole variety of things that are very, um, nitty gritty and deep in daily experience, people were saying that to me now. And I'm okay, now we're getting somewhere. <laughs> now we're getting somewhere. So, so certainly uh, with the results coming in, psychologists see the children of divorce all the time. Why doesn't the American Psychological Association or other professional groups like that come out with a statement on on the the benefits to to children of marriage isn't that interesting isn't that interesting that they don't they have lots and lots of data that would point to that it wouldn't be that hard to make you know to make a little white paper on the subject and say it's okay but pretty much most of the professions i would say pretty much all of the professions are completely in the tank for the uh, for the sexual revolution I would say they've been corrupted by the sexual revolution so that the evidence that's right in front of them, uh, they no longer uh, can see. And so that is the interesting question. Why do they not see it? 
what is it that's stopping them from connecting the dots and going, you know, come on, this would be a lot simpler if, you know, <laughs> if the parents got married and stayed married. And, and here's my theory about that, Mark. My theory about that is that entering the professions has a price tag attached to it. And part of the price tag is you must delay childbearing. That's the entry fee for finishing college. That's the entry fee for getting going to graduate school, going to professional school. You have got to delay childbearing. Whether you're a man or a woman, you got to put it off, right? Um, and so, and so that means that the people in the positions of responsibility and education and influence, more, many, many of those people, it is probably normative for that social class that they have spent years of contraceptive sex. And they've probably got at least one abortion in their past. Um, and, and so, therefore, for them to say um, this, there's something wrong here means they have to look back at their own life. They, they're not just looking at data on the page. They're, they're going to have to reconsider some of their primary commitments. And believe me, when they do, those people are on fire. <laughs> those, those, those are your good people when they, when they do. And that, that's where we came up with the concept of the survivors of the sexual revolution, of enlisting them, of looking for people like that. Because once somebody makes that leap and says, you know, I was sold a bill of goods. This isn't working. It never worked. I should have known it didn't work. I'm sorry. You know, when a person does that whole thing, uh, by the time they're done with that process, they're not going to be talked out of their position because somebody pressures them or they see a slick ad campaign on TV or something, you know, they know, they know something's more deeply wrong uh, than, 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 than they have been led to believe, you know, and, and so they're committed in a, in a deeper way. So that, that's part of why we adopted that strategy of, um, and I, I knew it would be true, but I didn't realize how true it would be. Cause I mean, we've uncovered some really dynamite people uh, using this, um, um, I don't know what you want to call it, a formula or procedure or this this approach, uh, we've turned up some really interesting people. Yeah. You, you know, you accuse sexual revolutionaries of deceptive practices, uh, for instance, when, as you said a few minutes ago, when they state that the motivation behind no-fault divorce was just to make it easier for those relatively few uh, people, mostly women, to escape abusive uh, horrible marriages, uh, but certainly it wasn't confined to that. Uh, what do the revolutionaries really want? Well, why don't they just say so? Right. Well, because what they want is disreputable, actually. I mean, you, you know, look, we now know that a lot of the people in the global ruling class are deeply implicated in pedophilia and sexual abuse. We now know that. Okay. That is not just uh, Theodore McCarrick and all of the corruption in the Catholic Church. That story of corruption in the global Catholic Church can be repeated in the United Nations, in the public school system, certainly in Hollywood, you know, the sports leagues, it's everywhere. And, uh, and, and so in, in, the, in my book, The Sexual State, I was pretty circumspect about saying that, you know, I, I did say, well, a lot of people are making money on the sexual revolution. A lot of people are really ideologically committed to it. And it you know, makes them feel good to believe this and they believe it. And so they're going to stick with it. You know, I, I, I say all of that, which is all also true. But and I said, and, you know, some of them just want to get laid. I, I now think that that last motive that, that some of them just want to get laid. I think that's bigger than we have given any credit to, to be honest, Mark. I mean, I, I think that 
I think you cannot any longer ignore it. That that the people who are saying, "Oh, this is all great," uh, anybody who makes you feel guilty is your enemy. You know, <laughs> that there's something. Some of those people are very are involved in some very dark stuff. Let's just let's just, we don't have to get hysterical and say everybody. But you know, look, Stephen Reinhardt, Judge Judge Stephen Reinhardt, the crazy guy in the, in, in the, the Ninth Circuit out in California. Remember him? Uh, the, he, he was the Chief Justice of the Ninth Circuit of the of the of the court in um, in California, and there under his leadership, they came out with one very liberal, very pro-sexual revolutionary ruling after another. Right? Well, he's dead now, and people are coming forward. Several women have come forward and said he sexually harassed them for years. That's how he treated his clerks. You know, and you go, come on, man, come on. We're supposed to believe you're the great defender of women, and you're acting like this. <laughs> it is. It- as these things have come out, and, and they seem to be coming out more and more, and the, the data on the, the impact of the sexual revolution is, is spreading, and that, that, I gather, is one of the rationales for the Ruth Institute that you head, is the general opinion of the sexual revolution as a glorious liberation starting to wane? I think there are more people who are seeing through it. Let's put it that way. I think there are more people who are willing to give it a second look, more people who are saying, I'm done with it. Um, at, the, at the upper reaches of it, where it's really institutionalized and entrenched, no, I don't see any movement there. But I wouldn't expect to either. You know, I, I think you've got to put together a coalition of people who are committed uh, to the alternative to the sexual revolution. And that coalition is probably not going to include the guys, you know, at the very top of the food chain, you're going to have people in middle management of the professions, um, middle-class people. Those are the people who are, who, who have the, who have the experience, the professional experience and education and so on to be able to do something constructive, but they're not so deeply entrenched and so deeply implicated that they're never going to come clean, you know? So I I think that's the most likely place to look for improvement. And, And I do think, Mark, we should say, what is the alternative to the sexual revolution? The alternative to the sexual revolution is lifelong married love. Okay. And, and the Ruth Institute has a dream that every child be born, be born into a, into a loving home with their own mother and father married to each other. That is the dream. And traditional Christian sexual ethics supported the rights of children to be in a relationship with both of their parents for a lifetime. If you, if you think about it, really start analyzing it, you'll see it was all pointing to that, you know, that you, you only have sex with the person you're married to. When you get married, you only have sex with that person, not before, not afterwards, not with other people. But you give exclusive sexual rights to your sex, to your, to your spouse. And unless somebody does something really awful, you stay together for a lifetime and you don't pick at each other and you don't look at your spouse as a, an alien life form, even though they sometimes feel like an alien life form. You don't look at your husband and go, oh, he's a man. He's the enemy. You know, he's, he's, you don't scapegoat half the human race. You know, you look at them as your, as your other half, as something that completes and helps you and supports you. And so that, that world of traditional Christian sexual ethics um, builds a civilization of love, as John Paul II would have called it, right? That's the alternative to the sexual revolution. 
And it's very important that we say a civilization of love is the alternative. Uh, in, in, in our last few minutes, uh, Jennifer, you, you talked a little bit earlier hinting at the sexual state, the state's role in all this. What is the thesis of your book, The Sexual State? So the, the thesis of the sexual state is that the sexual revolution was a creation of the elites of society using the power of the state to make it work and to enforce it and to keep it going. That is the, that's the short version of, of, of the thesis of the sexual state. Without the state, none of this would have been possible. And the elites were able to capture the power of the state in order to make things, uh, in order to remake the social structure in accordance with their desires. That's, that's the thesis. G give me some examples of specific actions by the state that made all this happen. So, so for example, removing the presumption of permanence from marriage, okay, that is clearly a, it's something that only the state can do, right? The state decides uh, what are the terms under which people can get married and divorced. So what no-fault divorce really did is it said that the state here, henceforth, the state will always take sides with the person who wants the marriage the least. Always. The state always takes sides with the person who wants the marriage the least. And uh, so no matter what that person might have done, no matter how innocent the other spouse may have been, we're not going to look into any of that. It's just one person wants to end the marriage. Okay, the marriage is over. So what that means is that the, not only is the presumption of permanence gone, but the presumption of sexual exclusivity is gone uh, because, you know, adultery used to count as a marital fault. It's not a marital fault anymore, right? Uh, now, in order to enforce the divorce, since we, we estimate probably 75% of divorces take place against the will of one of the parties, that means that there's a party who would like to stay in the family home and maintain contact with their spouse and with the children. That person must be removed from the family. Okay, that person against their will has to be kicked out of the house. They have to be separated from their children. They have to be prohibited from ever having anything to do with their with their spouse. In most cases, let us be clear, these are not cases where abuse has happened. Sometimes abuse is alleged that hasn't happened, but abuse is not part of the picture. It's just, I don't want, I'm, I'm fed up with you. I have a new boyfriend. I have a younger model girlfriend. It doesn't matter what the reason is. You're, you're gone and the state's going to help me get rid of you. That literally could not happen without the power of the state. Now, now Jennifer, where were all the conservative Republican politicians over the years who were in office, who putatively were in favor of family values, were they just ineffective? Well, uh, that's, that's a real question, isn't it? I think some of them, I, I think um, that vice and sin is not a partisan issue. I think you have um, well-to-do Republicans who want sexual liberation just as much as anybody else. And, and that's why if you look at Ruth Institute material, you'll very seldom see us talking about right or left or Democrat or Republican or anything like that. Because to my mind, the sexual revolution was a bipartisan affair for the most part, um, that it, it's, it's more of a class affair than a than a party affair or uh, a, an ideological affair, in, at least in the in the way that we normally look at left and right, you know, um, the right. And, and in fact, in some places, I, I, some of my pro-life friends will tell you, 
that in some places the Republicans are are worse problem than the, than the Democrats because the Republicans in those places are you know kind of old time it's more libertarian old, money, uh... old well they're old money people and they have the sense of privilege and you know and you know there really are too many poor people so pumping contraception into, into the poor people that's fine and and we get to do what we want and we'll get away with it and you know we we we're just not worried about these issues <laughs> you know you do have this kind of vibe you know so i mean i don't want to i don't want to get hysterical and accuse people wrongly but you know you ask where were these people and some of them were on the job okay Okay, some of them were on the job, and I'll give them credit, you know, that some of them really were, and some of them are to this day. Uh, some of them are fighting the good fight. But there are simply too many people in the higher echelons of society who are comfortable with the sexual revolution exactly the way it is. So they're not going to be out there fighting against it, you know. They, it doesn't, see, rich people can get away with things that poor people can't get away with. Um, a, a divorce is is a disaster for a poor person. Unmarried pregnancy is a disaster for a poor person. For a middle class person, it's inconvenient. For a Hollywood news, for a Hollywood star, it's a press release. You know, you you go up the press, you go up the food chain. It's just it's just has a different implication for people, and and we have too many in our upper classes who don't have a sense of responsibility really. Uh, to the lower classes. So that, that kind of libertarian ethos that a lot of people have, uh, you know, that selfishness is a virtue, that's, that's still out there. Um, yeah, they're not, you don't need that many Ayn Rand people anymore, but that, that idea, that kind of radical individualism, it's still part of the American character, you know? And what that means is that a lot of times people make it to the top and they have an outsized influence on the world around them, but they don't feel any sense of responsibility for what they're going to do with that influence. And so particularly in, in, in the area of sexual morality, um, people just do not look too closely at the example they're setting or that the policies they're putting into place. Uh, whereas people are so... Um, public with their virtue signaling around what are called social justice issues, uh, the, the issue, there's a whole other set of issues that nobody wants to touch, which to my mind really are social justice issues. I mean, it used to be that every child, rich or poor, could expect to grow up with both of their parents. And, and now that's not true anymore. You didn't have to be rich. You didn't have to be white to have that. Everybody had that. Uh, and, you know, that's a kind of, that's, to me, that's a more important fundamental form of equality than all the things we've been talking about lately. You know, and, and that came to the fore when we were talking about um, the, the whole issue over redefining marriage to remove the gender requirement. You know, the gay activists wanted to say that we're in favor of marriage equality. A marriage equality, that's all they kept saying. And we, we're, we're scratching our heads going, well, wait a second. You, you're, you're introducing new inequalities that are completely unheard of currently. I think that some children have a legally recognized right to know both of their parents, and some children don't. What 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 the heck? You know, what kind of equality is that? You know, um, so that that actually actually that part of dealing with the whole debate over marriage back back in the you know uh, back before Obergefell. Um, that's what really led me to think more deeply about divorce and what it was doing to kids and third party reproduction and what that was doing to kids. And all of those things are creations of the state, Mark. You know, none of those things would be there without the state having the policies that it's got. Yep. 
you can find out more at ruthinstitute.org. Uh, Jennifer Morse, thank you for joining us. You're very welcome. Thanks for having me. And thank you for listening to our conversation, which has been supported by Wyoming Catholic College, which combines great books, the Catholic tradition, and the great outdoors of the American West into an extraordinary education. Go to wyomingcatholic.edu or contact the admissions office at 877-332-2930.